So tonight what I want to do is share with you a sutta that outlines the graduated training, the training that the Buddha specified for the monks and nuns to work from leaving home until all the way up to becoming fully enlightened. This graduated training appears in a number of suttas. The sutta for tonight is the second one in the long discourses, Diganikaya number two. It's the Samanyapala Sutta, which could be translated the fruits of the spiritual life. Now I'm going to give you my version of the sutta. When you go home, you better look up the real version, right? If you don't have a copy of the Diganikaya, you can find a copy of the sutta on the Access to Insight website. Everybody know about Access to Insight? It's the number one website on the entire web. Access to insight.org. Okay, lots of sutta translations, uh, writings by contemporary teachers, a glossary. It's, it's a very excellent resource. And so there's definitely a translation of this sutta there. Thus have I heard. Once the Buddha was staying in Jivaka's mango grove with a company of 1,250 monks on the outskirts of Rajgar, capital city of the kingdom of Magadha. Now Jivaka, who had given the mango grove to the Buddha to serve as a monastery, was the royal physician in the court of King Ajitasattu, king of Magadha. And on the night this story takes place, it was a full moon night. And King Ajitasattu was sitting on the upper terrace of his palace, surrounded by his ministers and other members of the court. And when the full moon rose, he uttered a joyful exclamation. Oh, what a beautiful night. Oh, what a wonderful night. Oh, what an auspicious night. Perhaps we could visit some recluse or Brahmin who might be able to bring some peace to my mind. You see, King Ajatasattu had a very unpeaceful mind. This was because he had killed his father, good King Bimbasara. King Bimbasara was one of the Buddha's first patrons and actually encountered Siddhartha Gotama before he became the Buddha. King Bimbasara was sitting, looking out a window of the palace, and he saw this recluse in the street below on alms round. But this recluse, he didn't seem like the other recluses. He had a more regal bearing. So he said to one of his ministers, follow that recluse, see where he goes. And the minister followed him back to Vulture Peak, which is a mountain just outside of the city of Rajgar. It's an excellent place to meditate. And so the minister reported back, and King Bimbasara went to see Siddhartha Gotama, found out who he was, what his story was, and offered him a ministerial position in the kingdom of Magadha. <clears throat> but Siddhartha Gotama wasn't interested in being a minister. He was interested in finding out what to do about old age, sickness, and death, so he politely declined. 
But King Bimbisara extracted the promise from him that if he figured it out, he would come back and tell King Bimbisara about it. And sure enough, a couple years after the Buddha's enlightenment, he did return to Rajgar and gave a talk to King Bimbisara. And King Bimbisara was established in the fruit of stream entry. He achieved the first level of enlightenment. And from that point on, he was a great patron of the Buddha and the Sangha. Now, King Bimbisara had a son, Prince Aditasatu, and Prince Aditasatu was a very ambitious man. You see, he grew weary of waiting for his father to die, and he decided to take matters into his own hands. He strapped a dagger to his thigh and went sneaking into his father's private quarters where he was promptly captured by the guards. He was hauled up before the king. And the guard said, We found your son sneaking into your private quarters and he had this dagger strapped to his thigh. Son, why were you sneaking into my private quarters with the dagger strapped to your thigh? It's going to kill you, Dad. Why do you want to kill me? I want your kingdom. Why didn't you just say so? Here, you can be king. I mean, King Bimbisara was very happy to retire and go on retreat, meditate. So King Ajitasatu got to be king without killing his father. But he grew worried that his father was going to get bored with the meditation and want his kingdom back. So he threw him in the dungeon. Couldn't bring himself to have his father killed. He just cut off all his food. He did allow King Bimbisara one visitor, the queen. She was very shrewd. When she would come visit her husband, she would smear her body with honey, and then the king could live by licking it off. When King Bimbisara wasn't dying, King Ajisasatu went to see him. Dad, how come you're not dead yet? Oh, when your mom comes to visit, she smears her body with honey, and I can live by licking it off. End of visits from the queen. But still, King Bimbisara wasn't dying fast enough. So King Ajitasatu had him tortured. And during the torturing, he died. The commentaries say that two letters arrived at the palace at the same time. And they gave the first letter to King Ajitasatu, and he opened it, and it said that a son had been born to his queen. And for the first time, he understood a father's love for his son. And he turned to his ministers and he said, release my father from prison. And they hand him the other letter, which said his father was dead. And from that night onwards, King, Bimba, King Ajitasatu had been plagued by terrible nightmares he would no sooner fall asleep than he would wake up screaming. And the servants would all rush in. Great king, great king, are you all right? I'm fine, I'm fine, go away, go away. And he'd fall asleep and have another nightmare. So on this full moon night, King Ajitsatu has insomnia. He doesn't want to go to sleep because he doesn't want the nightmares. And if the king can't sleep, nobody gets to sleep. So all the ministers and Jivaka and everybody from the court is up there on 
the upper terrace of the palace when the king utters his joyful exclamation about wanting to go see some recluse or Brahmin that could bring some peace to his mind. And one of the ministers immediately piped up and said, Great king, this Peruna Kasapa, he's long gone forth. He has many followers. He's esteemed as holy. Perhaps you should visit him. Maybe he can bring some peace to your mind. And some other minister piped up, there's Makali Gosala. He's long gone forth. He has many followers. He's esteemed as holy. Each minister championed his own recluse or Brahmin. The king said nothing. And after all the hubbub had finally calmed down, the king turned to Jivaka, who was sitting nearby. Jivaka, do you know any recluse or Brahmin we could visit? Great king, the Buddha, the perfectly enlightened one, is living in my mango grove with a company of 1,250 monks. He teaches the Dhamma, which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. Perhaps you should visit him. He might bring some peace to your mind. Prepare the elephant vehicles, Jivaka. So Jivaka goes running down from the upper terrace of the palace, down to the stables below, and he has 500 female elephants saddled up, along with the king's royal tusker. And then he runs back up to the upper terrace of the palace. Great king, the elephant vehicles are prepared. Do as you see fit. So the king had 500 women of the court, seated one each on the 500 female elephants. And he and Jivaka mounted up on the royal tusker, and they rode forth in full royal splendor, with torchbearers going before. Must have been quite a sight on that full moon night. They rode through the city of New Rajgar, then through the old city, and finally out through the city walls and hung a left and headed towards the mango grove. And when they got close to the mango grove, it was quiet. It was a little too quiet. King Ajitasatu became quite frightened. Jivaka, are you betraying me? Are you turning me over to my enemies? No, great king. Why would you think that? You said there's 1,250 people in this mango grove. I don't hear a sound. They're probably all meditating, great king. Go forward, go forward. Look, you can see lights in the pavilion hall. So they went as far as they could go on the elephants, and they dismounted. And the king and Jivaka and all the members of the court went up to the pavilion hall. And when they got there, the king says, Now, which one's the Buddha? He's the one sitting at the back facing everybody else. And Jivaka and the king sort of wander around. The king's checking the place out, looking at the monks, and he wanders up towards the front. And finally he says, Oh, if only my son the prince could experience peace such as this. And the Buddha heard him and said, Great king, do your thoughts follow your affection? Yes, venerable sir, indeed they do. I love my son very much, and it would be wonderful if he could experience peace such as this. And then the king saluted the Buddha, saluted the company of monks, and sat down at one side. He said, venerable sir, may I ask you a question? Certainly, great king, ask whatever you wish. Venerable sir, In my kingdom, there are people who practice many different crafts. There are elephant trainers, 
There are horse trainers. There are commandos, camp marshals, archers, spearmen. There are bakers, confectioners, cooks, garland makers, basket weavers, farmers, household servants. There are statisticians, accountants. All of these people practice their craft, and it's possible to see some fruit of their labor. Venerable Sir, can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life that is visible here and now? Great King, I will ask you a question. Answer as you see fit. Suppose in your palace there's a slave, a workman, who arises before you each morning, waits on you hand and foot all day long, sees that all of your needs are met, doesn't go to bed until after you go to bed. Suppose this slave were to think, it is wonderful, it is marvelous. King Ajitisattu is a man and I am a man, and yet he enjoys the five strands of sense pleasures as though he were a god. And I wait on him hand and foot from morning to night. Must be the result of doing meritorious deeds. Perhaps I too should do meritorious deeds. Great king, suppose after some time, this household servant, this slave, were to shave off his hair and beard, put on the ochre robe, and join a spiritual order. Upon hearing of this, would you say to your soldiers, make that man come back here and be my slave? Oh, no, venerable sir. We would rise up before him. We would prepare a seat. We would see to his food, clothing, shelter, and medicinal requirements. We would provide for him righteous protection. Great king, is this not a fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Yes, yes, certainly it is. Uh, Venerable sir, can you point out any other fruit of the spiritual life that's visible here and now? Great king, I will ask you a question. Answer as you see fit. Suppose in your kingdom there's a farmer who toils in his fields from morning to night. And when it's harvest time, he winds up paying a large portion of his harvest as taxes to maintain the royal treasury. Suppose this farmer were to grow weary of paying taxes. Suppose he were to think, it is wonderful, it is marvelous. King Ajitasatu is a man and I am a man, and yet he enjoys the five strands of sense pleasures as though he were a god, while I toil in my fields from morning to night. And when it's harvest time, I pay a great deal of my harvest as taxes to support the royal treasury. Great king, suppose this farmer were to shave off his hair and beard, put on the ochre robe, and join a spiritual order. Would you send your soldiers saying, make that man come back and be a farmer so he can support the royal treasury? Oh no, we would rise up before him, we would prepare a seat, we would see to his food, clothing, shelter, and medicinal requirements. We would provide for him righteous protection. Great king, is this also not a fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Yes, venerable sir, yes, it certainly is. Venerable sir, Can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, but more wondrous and more sublime than these? Listen, great king, and pay attention. A Tathagatha arises in this world, a Buddha, a fully awakened one, who teaches a Dhamma which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, 
good in the end. A householder or a householder's child hears the Dhamma and gains faith and thinks household life is crowded and dusty. Going forth is free like the air. After some time, this householder or householder's child shaves off hair and beard, puts on the ochre robe, and joins the Tathagata's order. Great King, when someone joins the Tathagata's order, they live restrained by the precepts, the rules of behavior. The first of these rules, Great King, is I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. The second of these rules is, I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. There are many rules, great king. We're celibate. We don't engage in idle chatter. We tell the truth. We don't use divisive language or harsh language. We don't take intoxicants. We only eat in one part of the day. We don't adorn ourselves with garlands or perfumes. We don't go to singing and dancing shows. We don't sleep on high and luxurious beds. We don't handle gold or silver. There are many rules, great king. By following these rules, it makes it possible to live with senses restrained. Upon seeing a sight, we do not grasp at the signs or secondary characteristics lest evil, unwholesome states such as greed or hatred overcome us. Upon hearing a sound, smelling a smell, tasting a taste, touching a texture, thinking a thought, we do not grasp at the signs or secondary characteristics, lest evil, unwholesome states such as greed or hatred overcome us. Great King, living with senses restrained like this makes it possible to be mindful of all that we do, Mindful of going forward and coming back. Mindful of looking forward and looking back. Mindful of getting dressed, of going on alms round, of eating the food, tasting, enjoying, swallowing. Mindful when going to the toilet. Mindful when waking up and falling asleep. Mindful when speaking and staying silent. We also have few wishes. All that we need to be content is food, clothing, shelter, and medicine if we're ill. It makes it possible for us to go anywhere we want, just like a bird on the wing. Great King, with this noble morality, this noble restraint of the senses, this noble mindfulness of all that we do, this noble contentment, it makes it possible to practice the spiritual path. Upon returning from alms round, having eaten the midday meal, one resorts to a secluded dwelling, the forest, the root of a tree, a hillside cave, a glen, an empty room, and sits down cross-legged, holds one's body erect, and sets up mindfulness before oneself. Great King, while practicing meditation, there are five states of mind that can rise that hinder progress on the spiritual path. The first of these is sensual desire. Sensual desire is like being in debt. If you're in debt, you must continually work to pay off the debt. You can't stop working and take a break. It's the same with sense pleasures. 
No sense pleasure is ever ultimately satisfying. You must continually work to obtain more sense pleasures. But if someone were in debt and were able to pay back that loan, they would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one overcomes sensual desire, they will rejoice and become glad. The second of these hindrances, great king, is anger and ill will. Anger and ill will is like being physically ill. If you're physically ill, you don't feel well, you can't think straight, you can't do what you want to do. If you're sick, it's the same. But if a man were sick and were to take medicine and overcome that sickness, he would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome anger and ill will, one rejoices and becomes glad. The third of these hindrances, great king, is sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor is like being in prison. If you're in prison, you can't do anything. You just sit there missing out on all the good things of life. If you're overcome with sloth and torpor, you can't do anything. You just sit there falling asleep and missing out. But if a prisoner were to gain his freedom, he would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome sloth and torpor, one rejoices and becomes glad. The fourth of these hindrances, great king, is restlessness and worry. Restlessness and worry is like being a slave. If you're a slave, you must go there and do that. Go here and do this. You never get to do what you want to do. But if a slave were to gain his freedom, he would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if you can overcome the restlessness and worry that's driving you away from actually doing your meditation practice, you'll rejoice and become glad. The fifth of these hindrances, great king, is skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt is like being on a perilous desert journey where bandits abound and provisions are scarce. First you think to go in this direction, but no, there might be bandits. And then you think to go in this direction, but no, there won't be any water. There's more starting and stopping than actual progress. It's the same with skeptical doubt. You're not sure what path to follow. You try this practice and abandon it before it takes you anywhere. And then you try another practice and again abandon it. But if someone on a perilous desert journey were to arrive at a place of safety, they would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome skeptical doubt, one rejoices and becomes glad. When one sees that these five hindrances are unabandoned, one regards them as being in debt, being sick, being in prison, being a slave as a desert road. But when one sees that these five hindrances have been abandoned, one regards that as freedom from debt, as good health, as freedom from prison, freedom from slavery, a place of safety. Thus secluded from sense desire, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first jhana, which is with initial and sustained attention to the meditation subject, and filled with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's entire body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King, 
Imagine a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice pouring soap flakes into a metal basin and mixing in just the right amount of water so that the soap flakes are totally permeated with water, totally filled with water, and become one homogeneous ball of soap. In the same way, in the first jhana, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion. So there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great king, this is the fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king, with the subsiding of initial and sustained attention to the meditation subject, by gaining inner tranquility and unification of mind, one enters and remains in the second jhana, which is filled with rapture and happiness born of concentration. One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great king, imagine a lake far up in the mountains where there are no streams that come from the east, the west, the north, or south, and not even any showers of rain. And yet, at the bottom of this lake, there's a spring of cool, clear water. The cool, clear water from the spring would totally permeate the lake, totally fill the lake, so there would be no part of that lake not touched by the cool, clear water. In the same way, in the second jhana, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great king, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king, with the fading away of rapture, remaining imperturbable, mindful, and clearly aware, one enters and remains the third jhana, a state that contains happiness, equanimity, and mindfulness. One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with a happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's body not filled with happiness. Great king, imagine a lotus pond where they grow blue, white, or red lotuses that grow up out of the mud but do not come above the surface of the water. They would lead their whole lives underwater, filled with water from their tips to their roots. In the same way, in the third jhana, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with a happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's body not filled with happiness. Great king, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king, with the fading away of pleasure and pain as with the previous passing of joy and grief, one enters and remains in the fourth jhana, a state beyond pleasure and pain that contains equanimity fully purified by mindfulness. One sits suffusing one's body with the pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's body not suffused, by the pure, bright mind. Great king, imagine a man covered from the head down by a white cloth, so there is no part of his body not suffused by the white cloth. In the same way, in the fourth jhana, one sits suffusing one's body with the pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's body not suffused by the pure, bright mind. 
great king, with a mind thus concentrated. Oh, and by the way, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Great king, with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and attained to imperturbability, one can incline and direct it to knowledge and vision. One understands thus, this is my body, made of material form, composed of the four great elements, born of mother and father, fed on rice and gruel, impermanent, subject to rubbing and pressing, to dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, which is bound up with it and supported by it. Great King, insights into the nature of things as they really happen, such as these, are also fruits of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and attained to imperturbability, one can incline and direct it to the various modes of supernormal powers. Being one, one can become many. Being many, one can become one. One can walk on water or walk through walls. One can dive into the earth as though it is water. One can fly through the sky seated cross-legged. One can hear sounds at a great distance. One can know the minds of others. One can remember past lives. One can see beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. Great King, supernormal powers such as these are also fruits of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and attained to imperturbability, one can incline and direct it to knowing this is dukkha. This is the origin of dukkha. This is the cessation of dukkha. This is the path of practice that leads to the cessation of dukkha. And one can follow that path all the way to the end and make an end of the asava of self the asava of becoming, the asava of ignorance, make an end to all dukkha. Great king, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. And furthermore, great king, there is no fruit of the spiritual life more wondrous and more sublime than this. King was impressed. <laughs> Wonderful, marvelous. This is, this is like setting upright something that's been knocked down, like, like, like pointing out the way to one who is lost, like, like bringing a light into a room so that those who have eyes can see. I go for refuge to the Buddha and to the Dhamma and to the Bhikkhu Sangha. May the Buddha please consider me a lay follower from this day forth. And then King Ajitasattu got all shamefaced, and finally he blurted out, Venerable Sir, a transgression overcame me. For the sake of kingship, I killed my father, a righteous man and a righteous king. Indeed, great king, a transgression overcame you in that you killed your father, a righteous man and a righteous king. But it is good that you admit such a transgression for the sake of your restraint in the future. 
And then King Ajitasatu said, we must be going. We have many things to do. Do as you see fit, great king. And so the king stood up, he bowed to the Buddha, he circumambulated the Buddha, and he and Jivaka and all the members of the court went back to where the elephants were parked, mounted up, and rode back to the city. And not long after they were gone, the Buddha said to the monks, this king has ruined himself. This king has destroyed himself. If he had not killed his father, a righteous man and a righteous king, then the stainless eye of Dhamma would have been opened in him tonight and he would have attained the first level of enlightenment. But this king has ruined himself. This king has destroyed himself. And the monks were very pleased with all that the Buddha taught. Now the sutta ends here. But the commentaries go on to say that King Ajitasattu went back to the palace and had his first good night's sleep since his father died. And he did indeed become a great protector of the Dharma. Three months after the Buddha's death, there was the first great council, 500 arhats, 500 fully enlightened disciples of the Buddha, came together to a cave just outside the city walls of Rajgar to recite the suttas and the precepts, to codify the Buddha's teachings. They obviously felt that the kingdom of Magadha was a safe place because King Ajitasattu was a great protector of the Dharma. But King Ajitasattu was an ambitious man. And after the Buddha's death, he set out on wars of conquest and conquered all of the neighboring kingdoms and built the nucleus of the first great Indian empire. But not all went well for King Ajitasattu. You see, his son killed him, and his grandson killed his son, and his great-grandson killed the grandson, and the great-great-grandson killed the great-grandson, And at that point, the people of Magadha said, enough of these father killers, and they killed the last of the line and established a new dynasty. So, any questions or comments? That's the story you find in the Vinaya, in the Theravadan tradition. The Buddha had a cousin named Devadatta. And if you read in the Vinaya, which contains the rules, but it also has stories associated with the rules and other historical information, in there it says that actually Devadatta decided that he wanted to take over the Sangha. He was jealous of his cousin's power. And so he did some magic. He was good at the jhanas and he could do various supernormal powers. So he did some magic for Prince Ajitasattu and convinced him he was a holy man. 
And after he'd gained the prince's confidence, he said, you know, you'd make a much better king. You should kill your father and take over. And then we can kill the Buddha and I'll take over that part. And the two of us can rule this whole kingdom. And then Prince Ajitasattu went in with the knife and got caught and, and so forth. After Prince Ajitasattu became king, and before our story takes place, um, Devadatta goes to King Ajitasattu and says, okay, now it's time to take care of the Buddha. Give me some soldiers. And so Devadatta got some soldiers and he sent them to kill the Buddha. There was only one guy actually going to do the killing. He comes walking into the monastery where the Buddha is and several monks come up to him and say, we know why you're here and we don't think it's a good idea. You know, it's kind of hard to sneak into a place with evil intentions when you've got all these people around that can read your mind, <laughs> right? He said, uh, you better go home, but don't go back the way you came. There's two guys up the road waiting to kill you. You better go home that way. So he went home that way. And then the monks went up the road to where the two guys were, and they said, uh, you know that guy you're waiting to kill? He ain't coming. You better go home. But don't go that way. There's four guys up the road waiting to kill you. You better go that way. So they went that way. Then they went up to where the four guys were. And they said, uh, you know those two guys you're waiting to kill? They ain't coming. You better go home. But you better go this way because there's 16 guys up the road there. And then they went up to the 16 guys. And he said, those, you know those four guys you're waiting to kill? They ain't coming. Go home. Go home. So the plan failed. So Devadatta decided to take care of it himself. And he climbed up on Vulture Peak above where the Buddha was meditating and he found a big, big boulder and he pushed it down and it headed towards the Buddha. But it struck another rock and veered off. Now a shard came off and cut the Buddha's foot. Uh, Jivaka, by the way, was the attending physician and was amazed at how quickly the Buddha's foot healed. But still... Devadatta had failed a second time. So he managed to borrow a wild elephant that had recently been captured from King Ajatasattu. And when the Buddha was on alms round in a very narrow street in the capital of Rajgar, he loosed the elephant hoping it would charge the Buddha. And it did. It charged the Buddha, and the Buddha just stood there beaming metta at the elephant and it ran up to him and knelt down in front of him. And after that, the elephant was so tame, it was totally useless as a war elephant, which is what they had planned. So it failed a third time. At that point, Devadatta decided, okay, he's going to go to the Buddha and he's going to propose five additional ascetic precepts. So he goes to see the Buddha and he proposes these five additional precepts. What were they? The monks had to be vegetarians. They couldn't eat a meal when someone invited to them house to their house. They had to just eat alms food. They had to wear rag robes. They had to live in the forest all the time. They couldn't build shelters. They had to live under trees. I think that's what they were. And the Buddha says, no, not practical. 
So then Devadatta got 500 newly ordained monks, and he said, the Buddha's gone soft. I got the five additional precepts. I'm the real guy, and these monks who didn't know anything followed him. When Sariputta and Mahamogalana found out, this is the Buddha's two chief disciples, they went to the Buddha and told him and said, don't worry, we'll get these monks back. So they went to where Devadatta was giving a discourse. And Devadatta saw him coming in the distance. And he thought, oh, i got the big guns now. My plan is working. You know, and he welcomed him up and set him down on each side of him and continued his discourse. And eventually he said, please, Sariputta, continue the discourse. I will go lie down. And he went lay down in the hut behind. Now, the Buddha used to do this. The Buddha had a bad back. And sometimes for the evening Dhamma talk, he would just give a brief introduction and then turn to Sariputta or Moggallana or somebody and ask them to elaborate. And the Buddha would go back and lie down, rest his back, but he would listen very carefully. And when the Dhamma talk was over, he would come out and say something like, if I'd given the talk, that's exactly what I would have said. But Devadatta went and lay down and fell asleep. And when he woke up, wasn't anybody there. <laughs> Sorry, Putin Mahamogalana had set the 500 newly ordained monks straight and they'd all gone running back to the Buddha. It says that Devadatta was so upset that hot blood gushed from his mouth and he fell violently ill. After nine months, he repented of his evil deeds and he asked to be taken to see the Buddha. But because he'd been so bad, his as soon as he got to within about a mile of where the Buddha was staying, there was a violent earthquake, and the guys carrying the stretcher, he was still too ill to walk, they dropped the stretcher, and just before he hit the ground, it opened up, and he fell straight into hell. <laughs> now, that's what it says in the Vinaya. But there's a logical flaw here. Devadatta tries three times to kill the Buddha. And then he comes waltzing into the monastery and proposes five rules. Does that make any sense? I mean, if he comes waltzing into the monastery, they're going to grab this guy and haul him out before he ever gets anywhere near the Buddha. Hmm, something weird going on here, especially when you consider that we do have other copies of the Vinaya. No mention of this story. What's going on? Well... There were Chinese pilgrims who came to India, and a lot of what we actually know about early Buddhism after the time of the Buddha comes from these pilgrims. And one of them was, hmm, I think, a few hundred years A.D., and at that time there was a cult of Devadatta in the same area where there was Buddhism. So my guess as to what's happening, and I got this from reading a paper that some scholar had worked up, Devadatta was indeed a cousin of the Buddhas, and he practiced, and he got pretty far along on the path, but then he decided the Buddha was going Soft, he proposed the five extra rules. The Buddha turned him down, but he did manage to take some of the monks away, and he created a schism in the Sangha and his own cult. You know, they weren't Buddhists, they were 
Devadatist. Right? And this flourished for several hundred years afterwards. Now, it's in the same region where Buddhism is. <coughs> it's a competing religion. And the Theravadins, the original guys, started saying, you know those Devadatta's over there? You know what happened with them? And they made up this story about Devadatta being really evil. And so that's what's been passed down to us. Whereas I think Devadatta was just somebody who was more interested in, in ascetic practices than the Buddha was, proposed the five extra rules, got turned out by the Buddha, and created a schism in the Sangha, and probably had nothing to do with trying to kill the Buddha or with Prince Adityasattu. But that's my guess. So, there's a very long answer to your question. Other, yes? Would you, would you comment on, um, on the Buddha's comment on, uh, on the king, that, that his having committed this crime mm-hmm. precluded his, uh, his progress on the spiritual path when, when certainly there are other stories in, mm-hmm. in Buddhism that, that point in the opposite direction? Right. Certainly there is redemption in Buddhism. There's Angulimala, the mass murderer who killed 999 people before he encountered the Buddha, hit stream entry at his first encounter of the Buddha, and eventually became an arhat. Of course, sometimes when he go on alms round, somebody throw rocks at him or something. He still had to deal with the karmic consequences of being a murderer. But he did become an arhat, whereas the king couldn't even get to the first level. In the culture of the Buddha, there were five heinous crimes, five crimes that if you committed one of these, you were headed straight to hell. And they were killing your mother, killing your father, killing an arhat, attempting to kill a Buddha, attempting to create a schism in the Sangha. And so since King Ajitasattu had killed his father, according to the cultural norms of that time, he was headed straight for hell. He wasn't going to be able to make progress on the spiritual path. There's also the fact that he was an ambitious man, and the the Buddha recognized this. If somebody is so interested in raw power, they're willing to kill their father, how much interest do they really have in the spiritual path? It's just not there. And given King Ajitasattu's wars of conquest and so forth, I think the Buddha read him right. So I could also make the interpretation of what the Buddha said in terms of the Buddha understood who this guy was and that he just really wasn't interested in the spiritual path. He was smart enough. In other words, he had the understanding. He could have, if his interest was going in that direction, arrived at stream entry. But because he was interested in raw power, it just wasn't going to happen. So then he had ruined himself. He'd missed out on the spiritual path. Now, the commentaries say that he got reborn in the hell of copper cauldrons because he killed his father. The hell of copper cauldrons, it takes 60,000 years to sink to the bottom and float back up to the top. And once you get to the top, at least in Ajisatu's case, You die from that hell and you get reborn. And because he was such a protector of the Dharma, he'll get reborn in the human realm and become enlightened at that point. So, 
He's just got to pay for killing his father, and then he'll be all right. But that's the commentaries. What about all the people getting enlightened? Well, they had a better teacher than you have. <laughs> I mean, they had somebody that was actually enlightened. So that's part of it. Um, it's said that when a Buddha appears, a lot of people that are on the verge of enlightenment incarnate at the same time. So. The Buddha's got a lot of low-hanging fruit, so to say. You know, he's got people that are ripe, and he can, you know, he knows what to say to take them over. But part of it, I think, is also the the culture at that time really supported spiritual progress, spiritual seeking, in a way that our culture doesn't. I mean, our culture is telling us to go in the exact opposite direction. You got a problem. Acquire this, right? Not let go, not renounce, but acquire, buy. So the culture was supportive. The teacher was really brilliant and was enlightened. Um, I think those were probably some of the major things that were happening. Now, you want to look carefully at the stories. There are people who get to the first stage of enlightenment via a talk, Definitely. You know, this happened to King Bimbasara, it happened to Jivaka, it happened to other people. They got enough of what the Buddha was teaching that they really had a breakthrough just from listening to a talk. But there was still more work to do because there's four levels of enlightenment. And in the talks where somebody becomes enlightened, fully enlightened during a talk, It's people that have done a lot of work. In other words, they've done a lot of practice, they've really gotten fairly close, and the Buddha knows exactly what to say to take them the rest of the way. Uh, So I think that's probably the best answer I can give you for that. Is there any possibility that we have upped the criteria in the same way that the Sudhimaya Right. Have we upped the criteria of what it means to be enlightened? Looking at the suttas and what it means, the Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, the end of dukkha. All right. So are we aiming for something more than the end of dukkha? Hmm, I don't think so. He also points out that The end of dukkha comes when there's the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. So, no, that's in the suttas. That that doesn't seem to have been upped that much more. Um, He also seems to indicate that the insight breakthroughs that are necessary are at the deepest level into this sense of self that we have and to really penetrate the fact that this is an illusion. I'll give you an example. If you go to the beach down here, right, you can stand there and you look out and you can see the world ends six miles out, right? Ten kilometers into the world. 
Ship gets too close to that, you know, goes right over the edge, disappears. It's terrible. All those people die. Happens from time to time. Okay, so now you've got this illusion that you're believing is reality. You have a friend that says, hey, let's sail over to France. I got a sailboat. You're like, no way, man. We get six miles out. We're going to fall off the edge of the world. All right, so you're now making a decision based on an illusion. So let's say they grab you, they stuff you in the space shuttle, they blast you into orbit. You look out, you see it's a sphere, they explain gravity to you. You come back to the beach, right down here, same beach. Looks the same, exactly the same. But this time you don't conceive of the edge of the world. You don't think there's an edge of the world out there. You you know better. It's just the horizon. The ship's just going over the horizon. It's no big deal. Your friend says, I got a sailboat. Let's sail to France. You're not going to say, oh, I'm worried about falling off the edge of the world. Maybe you don't go because you get seasick, but you're not going to be making your decisions based on that illusion. All right. We have the illusion of self. We need to penetrate that illusion just like you have all already penetrated the illusion of the edge of the world. Such that you're no longer conceiving of a self. And if you don't conceive of a self, you have no basis for selfish action. And if there's no basis for selfish action, then there won't be any greed or hatred. And you're not conceiving of a self, so no delusion either. So this seems to be what the Buddha's aiming at. So I think if you can manage to have a deep enough insight that it uproots that conceiving of a self, I think you're good. And I don't think that's been upped since the time of the Buddha. I think that's remained at the same level. But I could be wrong. Any other questions or comments? Okay, we'll take a short break and then I'll do guided meta. <laughs> 